We are back speaking with author David Talbot about his fascinating book, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. Well, Alan Dulles helped Richard Nixon throughout his career, but in the 60 election, he made a point to be friendly with the Kennedy camp and got kept on by JFK. And of course, this led in no small part to the first crisis of that administration, the, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, JFK fired Alan Dulles as a result, sacked about a fifth of the CIA staff. But you note that Dulles would continue on as if he was still in charge, which is a bit creepy. Yeah, again, uh, do we live in a democracy or don't we? Here we have the President of the United States, as you say, firing the head of the CIA after this disastrous CIA-led invasion of Cuba, in which they lied to the President, basically, basically sandbagged him into this thing. What they really wanted to do was to uh, have this motley group of uh, Cuban exiles hit the beaches. They knew they were going to never succeed in overthrowing Castro. They didn't have the firepower to do that. But what Dulles and the CIA were plotting was to have Kennedy uh, sandbagged and trapped into the position of having to send in the full powers of the U.S. military to rescue this uh, exile uh, brigade. And, of course, Kennedy refuses. He stands his ground. He defies his generals and, and Alan Dulles. And that's the first break, I believe, a very serious rupture in the Kennedy administration between the White House, Kennedy White House, and his national security apparatus. But uh, it, it's actually not the only defiant thing that the CIA is doing that fateful month, April 1961, just uh, a few months after Kennedy has been inaugurated. They're also trying to uh, overthrow a ally, a Democratic president of uh, France, the, uh, the legendary war hero, Charles de Gaulle, um, who has... Um, begun to antagonize uh, Western national security interests by playing a more and more independent role. Uh, he's talking about leaving NATO. He's trying to settle this very bloody, brutal colonial war in Algeria. And uh, Western oil interests are afraid that, as a result, uh, oil resources in northern Africa might fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. Uh, he's talking about developing his own nuclear policy. All these things are alarming and antagonizing uh, the CIA and other Western security interests. And so uh, they encourage a right-wing military coup in Germany to overthrow President de Gaulle. And that coup comes very close to succeeding in April 61. It's a very dramatic moment in the history of French democracy. Um, Kennedy had no foreknowledge of this. He was not told about it by the CIA. He's again uh, put in a position, a humiliating position, of clearly not being in control of his own CIA, and he has to tell this to Charles de Gaulle. Uh, but Kennedy offers de Gaulle whatever help he can, and in fact offers uh, the use of U.S. troops, NATO troops, to, uh, to resist any coup effort. But de Gaulle turns that down because I don't think he wanted the, uh, the you know, precedent of U.S. troops firing on French troops on French soil. But in any case, de Gaulle himself prevails. He goes before the French people in a very dramatic moment in French television in his uniform, and he says, people of France, men, women of France, come to my aid, and they do. They pour into the streets by the thousands, huge demonstrations against the French uh, military uprising, and the French military uh, rebels are forced to back down, and French democracy triumphs. And at that point, de Gaulle begins a very aggressive uh, policy of purging his security forces 
of uh, people who are close to the CIA, who are close to Alan Dulles. And I, I believe that's one reason why he survives multiple attempts to assassinate him, including a very notorious attempt to assassinate him that became the basis for the book and the movie The Day of the Jackal, where he's, in a, uh, he's being chauffeured through the streets of Paris in the presidential limousine with his wife, sounds familiar, and uh, snipers open fire on him from multiple directions, blowing out every tire, all four tires on his limousine. But his own security force is much more, I think, loyal to him, uh, and they uh, succeed in, in uh, you know, escaping that day. And, uh, and he remains alive and remains president. De Gaulle, flashing forward, of course, believed that Kennedy basically was the victim of the same hardline national security forces that had tried to kill him. And he says this to his information minister when he comes back from Kennedy's funeral um, in November 1963. <clears throat> and he says, but the American people will never be told the truth. America doesn't want the truth, but the truth is that Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President Kennedy, was a fall guy, a convenient scapegoat, and that Kennedy was actually the victim of his own national security forces. This is a remarkable remarkable piece of history and information that, again, the American people have not learned because the book that this was contained in was never translated from the French. It came out a number of years ago, and uh, it's just one of many, I think, very enlightening things about the Kennedy assassination that the American people have not been exposed to. And I want to add, David, one of the most enlightening things that you brought to us, because my jaw dropped when I read your portions of this French connection in, in the devil's chessboard. I was unaware of most of this, and it is astonishing, really, that, uh, among other things, Kennedy had to ask later for French help in identifying who in the intelligence, U.S. intelligence community might have been involved in it, because he didn't know. That's right. He's asking French intelligence during this attempted coup against the de Gaulle, please let me know if you know <laughs> who the perpetrators are in Washington so I can go after them. Wow. He, so Kennedy himself lacked the intelligence uh, ability, the intelligence resources, to root out who was responsible in this plot. You know, it shows once again how, how terribly isolated the president of the United States was within his own government. I believe, and I write about this in not only my new book, The Devil's Chessboard, and my earlier book, Brothers, about the Kennedy brothers, um, I believe that by the end of the Kennedy presidency, his administration had shrunk to an alarming circle, basically a very tight circle of people in the White House who JFK trusted, including, of course, his own brother, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and a handful of other trusted aides. But for the most part, as Arthur Schlesinger, the historian who served President Kennedy in the White House, later told me, again, a, a chilling statement, we did not control the CIA, and we did not control the Pentagon. And I think you can make the case for the, the uh, Kennedy White House not even controlling its own State Department under Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who again was one of these figures who was very closely aligned with the Dulles Circle, uh, 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 that power elite group. So, uh, you know, that's a, a very tragic and alarming you know, realization when you see how increasingly isolated that this young president becomes within his own government. Well, as you mentioned, JFK stood against the Hawks during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was facing insubordination on, on many fronts. And, and this does bring up one fascinating anecdote you put in the book, which I have to ask you about. Uh, apparently in the summer of 63, 
There was a meeting over at uh, Stanford's Hoover Institute. It got attended by young, then young Berkeley English professor Peter Dale Scott. The people over there were uniformly denouncing JFK. At that point, one attendee made a rather curious statement, which I, I need to have you tell us about. Well, of course, Peter Dale Scott is anyone who knows anything about the study of you know, the deep state, as it's been called, secret government, um, or you know, major events uh, like the Kennedy assassination. Knows that Peter Dale Scott, of course, is one of the legendary names in this field. And Peter's day job, as you say, for years was as an English professor at uh, UC Berkeley. But he moonlighted as a brilliant researcher into the sort of the deepest uh, layers of American power. But back in 1962, I believe it was, he uh, was a young scholar at Berkeley, not very political. And because he had served as a diplomat, a Canadian diplomat to Poland, he was friendly with a number of Eastern Europeans, anti-communists, who were refugees from uh, the communist regimes there. And so he was invited at one point to go down to Palo Alto, the, where the Hoover Institute was, for a party at the head of the institute, W. Glenn Campbell. And there were a number of very, you know, uh, prominent conservative figures there, you know, anti strong anti-communists and so on. And the dinner table conversation quickly became very heated uh, and anti-Kennedy. And everyone was uh, voicing their strong, you know, displeasure with the Kennedy presidency and how it was weak on uh, communism and was not confronting uh, the Soviet Union and, and Fidel Castro sufficiently and uh, so on. And so at one point, kind of one of the alpha males in the group turned out to be a, a Russian emigre in his robes. He was a priest, an Orthodox priest, and he stood up and he put up his hand and basically said, enough. We all know the trouble, basically, but the old man is going to take care of it. Well, at that point, uh, young Peter Dale Scott thought the old man was a reference to Joseph Kennedy, to JFK's father, the patriarch of the family, who always did indeed intervene throughout uh, younger Kennedy's life and was trying to be his political guide and mentor and so on. But the fact is that uh, Joe Kennedy, of course, by then had suffered a massive stroke and was all but in incapacitated couldn't speak and was in no, of course, uh, condition to be a, a force or a factor uh, in any way, uh, a force of influence over his son any longer. But I knew when Peter Dale Scott later told me this story many years later, uh, right before I began research on the Devil's Chessboard, that the old man actually was the affectionate nickname that Alan Dulles was known by within the intelligence community, by the national security world. And certainly people who would have been at that dinner party at the Hoover Institute that night would have been aware of this nickname. So it's my firm belief that when this prominent uh, Russian emigre stood up and said that the old man will take care of it, it was their feeling within those circles that by now the Kennedy presidency was such an aberration, was so out of step with sort of the Cold War uh, line in America, that he was putting the country at risk, and that was the feeling in these circles. Uh, and the feeling was equally strong that the old man, Alan Dulles, even though he'd been fired by Kennedy, still played a very powerful role in Washington. And as you alluded to earlier, I write that after he was fired by Kennedy, he went home to his home in Georgetown, where he continued to operate as if he was still running the agency. All his top uh, lieutenants, like James Angleton and Richard Helms, continued to come to his home to meet with him 
he, be, he develops, I think, basically an anti-Kennedy government in exile that again and again is attempting to subvert Kennedy policy. And so when this older Russian priest said uh, to this group, the old man will take care of it, I think the sense was that Alan Dulles was still very much in a position to um, correct uh, the mistake of the Kennedy presidency. We're speaking with author David Talbot about his book, The Devil's Chessboard. Well, we've crossed over at this point, David, into the more incendiary parts of, of what, what you looked at in the Devil's Chessboard. Uh, so let's, let's, let's get into it. During the Kennedy administration, efforts we now know were made to kill Fidel Castro. We also now know that CIA assets worked with the mafia on that, and that uh, a key figure in these efforts was CIA officer William Harvey. And I think it's, uh, we should take a minute to talk uh, a little bit about Bill Harvey. Yeah, well, let me just start with the headline. And, I, and this is the headline in my book, and I think it's the reason why Doug, the book has been blatantly ignored by the mainstream press. Uh, the alternative press has rallied around it. It's gotten great reviews from the trade publishing uh, book industry press, like Kirkus Reviews and Library Journal. But the mainstream East Coast newspapers, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, have, uh, if bluntly told, my publisher, we're not quote, we're not going to touch this book, in the words of the Washington Post editor. Um, and this is why. Um, I believe that JFK was killed by a plot that was uh, created within the CIA. And even above that, I believe he was, uh, that assassination had wide support within what C. Wright Mills, the sociologist who wrote The Power Lead and was a leading scholar of, West, of, of American power back in the Cold War, what he called the power elite. I think there was a strong consensus within that group, uh, the Wall Street world of the top sort of layers of American industry and within the military and intelligence world, that Kennedy was indeed an aberration because of his efforts to settle the Cold War, his efforts at detente with the Soviet Union and with Fidel Castro in, in Cuba, and that this was in, in such a, uh, a radical rupture from a Cold War consensus that there was a strong feeling that for the good of the nation's security, he had to go. And I believe that task then fell to Alan Dulles, who was, uh, of course, still seen as the enforcer um, in this world, the guy who could get things done. Because as we've been talking about, of course, he had a long history of doing just that, whether it was uh, trying to overthrow the government or, and kill uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, or to kill Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, um, or, uh, you know, the overthrows of the government in Iran and Guatemala. Again and again, Alan Dulles, of course, was uh, someone who had the uh, resources and the kind of temperament that uh, could get, get the job done. So I believe that Alan Dulles had created a killing machine in this, within the CIA during the 1950s, that by the end of the 50s, this killing machine was in the hands of this man that you just named, William Harvey. He was a rising legend within the CIA. He had run the Berlin station during uh, the Cold War. Uh, he was a notorious and beloved figure, uh, you know, a gun lover, always packing. Um, he was crude, he was tough, and he was ruthless. And... Um, he fell afoul of the Kennedys uh, because he kept, you know, running up against each other over Cuban policy when he was put in charge of the operation to kill Castro. 
I believe the Kennedys didn't know about that operation, that they inherited it from the Eisenhower presidency until Bobby Kennedy was finally informed about it in May 62, sheepishly, by two representatives from the CIA who told him that the CIA was in bed with the mafia in their efforts to kill Castro. This, of course, outraged Bobby Kennedy because Bobby Kennedy had built his whole career going after organized crime. And they assured Bobby Kennedy in May 62 that these plots with the mafia to kill Castro were uh, finished, they were over, the CIA was no longer doing it. But in fact, just at that very moment, the CIA was continuing to collaborate with the mafia in the, yet another uh, round of efforts to kill Castro. So again, the CIA repeatedly lied to the Kennedys and kept them in the dark about this. I believe that that killing team, and this is a killing team that, as I say, was under the uh, supervision of William Harvey, William Harvey was forced out of his position uh, as the head of the anti-Castro operation to save his career. The CIA sends him to Rome in the summer of '63, where he uh, again, uh, you know, tries to force his deputy to recruit mafia uh, members of the mafia to kill leading members of the Italian left. Uh, he, clearly, this is a guy who thought of assassination as part of his toolkit. I believe Harvey uh, and others were given the job then, sometime in 63, of coming back to the United States to organize the assassination of President Kennedy. And in fact, as I reveal for the first time in my book, Harvey's own deputy, who was a very respected CIA veteran named Mark Wyatt, Mark Wyatt, for the first time I reveal in this book, because he told his children and he told a French journalist who told me, that he saw Harvey on a plane uh, flying to Dallas earlier in November 63, sometime before the assassination. And when he asked his, his boss, essentially, why he was going to Dallas, he was very evasive, said something like, I'm just going to look around. Well, my feeling is that he was going to look around. He was helping to set up uh, the, the killing team that later killed the president. Mark Wyatt, Harvey's deputy, among others, was convinced, in fact, that Harvey did play a key role in the assassination of the president, which he told his grown children later. And, in fact, his daughter then urged uh, her father, Mark Wyatt, to testify to that effect before the House Assassinations Committee in the 1970s, but he said he was just too loyal to the CIA to do it, so he never did. And he's no longer living, but he did at least uh, leave this testimony with his own children and with his French journalist. Fabrizio Calvi, who shared it with me. I think this is a very important revelation, and it, it reinforces the work of uh, some of the braver investigators with the House Assassinations Committee back in the 70s, like Gaten Fonzi and like Dan Hardway, who was a young investigator with the committee, and he too believes that Harvey played a very important role in the assassination, and the CIA continued to cover that up. Well, on the operations level, there's another name that frequently surfaces regarding what happened to JFK. That would be CIA agent and later convicted Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt. From Hunt, we actually have, a, in essence, a deathbed confession. We spoke some weeks back uh, at length to St. John Hunt about that. Uh, you talk about it in the book. You believe there's much credibility to his story. And then in, but then in the end, in the end, Hunt was probably still practicing a bit of his spycraft by not mentioning his mentor, Dulles, whom, to whom he was very close. But he does also mention Bill Harvey. He does indeed. In his book, his, his own memoir, American Spy, and then, as you say, to his own, in his own confessions to his son, St. John, as he was uh, sick and dying in the, his final years, 
and St. John was very insistent and, and that his father come clean and, um, you know, reveal what he knew. And I think uh, the elder hunt engaged in what was later known, became known during Watergate as a limited hangout. I think that's what he was doing. I think he was telling us some of the truth, not the whole truth. But what he did reveal was, you know, shockingly important. And, of course, uh, once again, the American media is asleep at the wheel. And when he uh, began to make these confessions, uh, you know, 60 Minutes briefly showed an interest in it. But then I think the word came on came down from on high the way it always does. No, cover this up. We're not going to go there. So they dropped the story. And the only publication that reported on Hunt's confessions about the assassination was Rolling Stone magazine. One of the most interesting things Howard Hunt revealed near the end of his life was this. He talked about a meeting at a CIA safe house in Miami where some of the key figures who've long been suspected of being involved in the assassination of JFK met and talked about this uh, upcoming uh, operation as the, quote, the big event. Well, the big event uh, and the meeting at that house in Miami involved such notorious characters as Frank Sturgis, who was uh, a CIA thug and was one of the later the Watergate members of the Watergate so-called plumbers team, the break-in team under Howard Hunt. Um, there was David Morales, who was uh, in some ways the most notorious CIA assassin, a guy who'd grown up very poor in New Mexico and uh, was you know, had been recruited by the CIA to do its dirty work and was someone who was very good at that and I think probably responsible for a number of assassinations throughout Latin America. So when he starts to name these people, like Harvey, like David Morales and others, I think Howard Hunt is telling us the truth up to a point. But you're right, he didn't go high enough, um, and he certainly didn't name Alan Dulles, although I think Alan Dulles was indeed centrally involved because of his, uh, you know, intense loyalty uh, to the upper command of the CIA. We're speaking with author David Talbot about his book, The Devil's Chessboard. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let us take another short break. We will resume our conversation when we return. 